The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. What a great passage of Scripture to dwell on this morning. And last week, as we said, we began this series in uh, generosity. Uh, if you missed it, we, we said that we shouldn't think of generosity as merely as a financial matter. If you're new with us or maybe missed last week, you came in, you saw the bulletin, and you said, oh no, why did you invite me to church this week? We're talking about generosity. Why didn't I stay home? But generosity is not less than money. It is much, much more. It is much more than just financial generosity. And to be truly biblically generous is to be generous all over, we said. It's possible to be very generous with your wealth and yet very ungenerous or stingy in your heart. It's possible to be very generous relationally, but very stingy with your money. And so the biblical generosity is to be generous all over in every area of life. To say it another way, there is more than one currency with which to be generous than money. This passage is a prime example of what it looks like to be relationally generous. Generous with a different kind of currency. How to share, how to give, how to spend of ourselves for the sake of others. There is such a thing as being relationally generous. And it is here in this truth we see that a follower of Christ must be relationally generous. It's extremely practical and here is where it will lead us this morning. We'll see three things, the cost of relational generosity, the practice of relational generosity, and the path to relational generosity. First, let's talk about the cost, the cost of relational generosity. Because if we're talking about relationships being a currency, that we give, what does it truly cost us? There are two, two ways here that a person can be relationally stingy or ungenerous. And he says those two ways are through conceit and through envy. There's two ways to be relationally ungenerous, and that's when we are conceited, when we are envious. Conceit is what? Conceit is looking as ourselves as superior to others. And so it's putting others down and looking down on others who, who we see as, as weaker or uh, disadvantaged or inferior to, to our character, our behavior, or our assets, whatever it is. What is envy? 
Well, envy is kind of the opposite way. Instead of being feeling superior and looking down on others, envy is actually acknowledging our own inferiority and looking up to others and desiring what they have and wanting what they have and wanting to be who they are. And so in different ways, both, seeking, both people are seeking their self-worth at the expense of other people. The, the, the conceited, they find their self-worth at the expense of others by looking down on them. The envious finds their self-worth at the expense of others by what they can have that that person has that they really want. Both the conceited and those who are envious are, are self-absorbed people. Self-absorbed, unable to be generous, unable to be radically generous with their lives to other people. Either the self-worth is found in becoming like you, or my self-worth is found in because I am not like you, and that makes me very happy, right? Either way, I'm not giving myself to you. I'm using you. I'm not spending for you. I'm not giving myself for you. I am asking you to give to me. It's relationally ungenerous. It's possible in this way, if we're talking about the currency of relationship, it's possible to be a consumer of relationships, to treat relationships like a consumer relationship. There's, there is a less than generous kind of friendship that we can have with people. Tim Keller, is a, uh, he's a, a well-known pastor in, in New York, and he coined this term transactional friendship. Simple, you probably are figuring out what that might mean. Transactional friendship is when we treat people as a means to an end. And instead of prioritizing the flourishing of that person and the well-being of that person, we put our goals and our priorities above their well-being. And the obvious problem with this kind of transactional friendship and relationship is that when that person stops meeting our needs or when the cost of that friendship becomes greater than the benefit, we discard them and we go to a different friendship, we go to a new relationship. We do that in dating relationships, we do that uh, in, in workplace relationships, we do that with neighbors and friends and coworkers, we do that with so many different relationships. What can you do for me? Oh, I really wanna be around you, I really wanna be your friend. And what we really mean is, you, you have something that I want. And as long as you keep giving me what I want, I will keep being your friend. And this is radically ungenerous radically unrelational. When the Bible talks about relationship, it has in mind this relationship that is marked by this long-term loyalty that is aimed at, at serving one another, supporting one another, forgiving one another, strengthening one another, towards this mutual pursuit of knowing and loving Jesus more. Verse 24 and 25 says, we, we see this clearly, it says, but those who belong to Jesus, those who belong to Jesus are live differently in their life. They have different kind of relationship. They do not pursue these relationships that are transactional or consumeristic. They live differently. They are generous. They spend themselves. And so whether you're introverted or extroverted or, or just socially awkward, can I get a show of hands? No, because you, yeah, you're unlikely to do that if you are socially awkward. You are made in the image of God to experience deep and meaningful relationship. Because God is a God of relationship. Well, God just didn't make me that way. It's just not my personality. Then that is to say you are made not in the image of God. Or that God, when he created you, he, he made a, a special kind of person that is not meant to demonstrate what God is like. 
God in himself lives in perfect, unbroken community within the Godhead. The plurality of the Godhead, the complexity of the Godhead, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Complete harmony and love for one another. And we are made to be like him. We are made in his image. Even sin, although it corrupts this desire uh, and, and pursuit of healthy relationships, it never takes it away completely. So with all kinds of generosity, there's this currency, this relational generosity, of course. Uh, it might cost you something. What does it cost you? What does relational generosity actually cost a person? Well, of course, it costs you financially. Uh, there may be times where you go out to dinner with friends. There may be birthday parties that come up. Uh, there may be things like that. But the primary currency of relational generosity is not money. It's something else. And the cost is this. The cost of relational generosity comes with the laying down of our self-absorbed life and the taking up of the spiritual, emotional, relational, and physical needs of others. The cost comes when we put aside our self-absorbed life and says, I am for you. I am for your well-being. I am for your flourishing. I am for your growth in Jesus. And when you think like that, you will start to realize what it truly costs. It is costly. It is messy. It is painful and uncomfortable. Real generosity will disrupt your life real relational, dis, uh, relational generosity. It will push us into situations and in people's lives that are so messy and so uncomfortable, and we will resist it. We will push back at that. Maybe you've done that. Maybe you're doing it now. I've spent a lot of my life doing that. C.S. Lewis uh, quotes this. He writes this. He says, speaking of relationship and love for one another, he says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in the casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable imperishable, irredeemable. And so there it is. Relationships are costly. They're disruptive. But it is in a context where we learn the very depths and manifestations of God's love and friendship and costly relational generosity to us. And so how can we be faithful? We learn that it's costly. It's costly. God calls us to a costly and disruptive kind of relationship with other people. What are some ways we can practice this, this kind of relational generosity? Here's, a, here's just a few practices um, that we draw out of the scripture. One, the first one is be committed to confident and gentle, I'm going to say the C word, confrontation. The dirty C word, right? Confrontation. Be committed to this kind of confident and courageous and, and gentle confrontation. This is a way that we can practice healthy biblical generosity in our relationships with other people. Unfortunately, this isn't something Christians are really good at. It's not something that we do very often or even very well. We are either timid and we do nothing when we, when, when we are wronged or when someone is caught in sin. As the Bible says, we're caught in any sort of transgression. You who are spiritual should restore them in a, in a spirit of gentleness. But 
often we're too timid and so we, we do nothing. Or the other way is we're very harsh and we come at that person down with a hammer and we crush them. And we say, well, I can't do anything. I, I can't resist and I can't move in and so what do I do? I'm just, I feel like I'm in orbit and I don't know how to engage. If you don't desire to learn how to confront well and how to engage in that relationship with others, in a sense, your spiritual maturity will be stunted. Paul says that, the, the author of, the, of Galatians, he says, those who are spiritually mature, so he says that this is something we all should aspire to as we, as we aspire to know Jesus more and to grow into maturity in our relationship with God. And this is a progression. This is an act of, of, of those who are growing. You will, you will engage in this sort of confrontation. So if you desire to grow in your walk with Jesus, you'll not be able to shy away from the practice of confrontation. Gentleness is the word that, that is used to describe how to do this. The act of restoring, the, the act that leads to restoring and actually gaining a brother or sister in Christ who has offended you or you, or you who, who you have offended. And this language here is talking about this uh, restoring with the spirit of gentleness. It's, it's, it's talking about this restoration, kind of like resetting a bone that has been uh, taken out of socket. I, I've shared this analogy, but it's been probably, I think, maybe a few years, and so uh, I'm safe to, to say it again, but if, if, you, if you were here three years ago, just, just bear with me. It's my favorite analogy. So, um, it, uh, My son, one time, he, he came into the house and and, uh, and his, his arm was just, it was limp. It was like just a dead arm. It was, it was, he was in pain. He was crying. He was screaming. Uh, he was in obvious agony. And so I thought I'd give it some time. I don't know if he got like a, I don't know, Charlie horse in his arm or something like that. And, and but, but the next hour goes by and he was still like in pain and he's holding his arm. And then when he stopped holding it, it was just like hanging. And I looked online, you know, so I Googled it, right? It's like, what is this, you know? And I found something called like a, a nursemaid elbow. If you're nurses or you're in the medical profession, you're, you're aware of this. And uh, it happens when abusive parents grab their child when they're not doing something that they're you know, supposed to do. Get over here. And they pull their, they pull their elbow basically out of socket. Uh, what actually happens, it's common in little kids. Uh, maybe it's happened in yours. You know, when you need, you're grabbing them towards you and they, it's, a, it's a combination of them twisting and you pulling and it pulls their elbow kind of out of socket. And so I found a YouTube video on how to reset a dislocated elbow, right? <clears throat> and I'm watching this video, and I have to watch it like several, several times because as the person is describing how to reset this elbow, the kid is screaming so loud that I can't hear the instruction. And so <clears throat> I keep, I watch it over and over, and I said, I think I got this. And, it, and, and, and it's this firm grasp and this very uh, gentle twist in the right location. And I said, I'm going to give this a shot, you know, and save a copay. And, uh, and so I grab his elbow tight, and I twist it, and I hear this pop. And as soon as I hear the pop, he just starts laughing. And this immediate relief. And I was like, okay, we did it. And I'm sweating the whole time, and I'm just terrified, and, and, and I'm, I'm scared. And I'm like, wow, I did it. Here's the point of this thing. As we're talking about restoring someone who is caught in transgression, who is, who is who's caught in a sin... There is this restoration that we ought to have with them that is both firm and gentle. Not going in there, grabbing the elbow and saying, well, how do we do this thing? Let's just try a couple stuff. Or it's not stepping back and just like touching it gently. It is grabbing it with intentionality and firmly putting your hands where they're supposed to be and skillfully twisting it back into place. He starts laughing in that moment. We, we celebrated. We laughed together. We 
Because he was restored. Because he was made well. And this is the kind of posture that we are to take when we are hurt, when we are offended, when a brother or sister is caught in a certain kind of sin or any kind of sin. We are not to be careless. We are not to just try whatever comes to our mind. We are to still our mind and our nerves and to carefully and skillfully restore. Speak truth with love. If you say, well, that's just not my personality. I'm just the kind of person that I, just, I speak my mind and that's just who I am. Then you're not restoring well and you are relationally very ungenerous. If you say, well, I just don't like confrontation. It's not what I'm good at. Well, then you are not restoring well. You're not committed to the work of restoration and you are relationally ungenerous. The spiritual care for others, it's not just friendly interaction. It's loving and encouraging and engaging in real life out of a motivation to love and restore that brother or sister. We do not resist entering into with, with gentleness and courage. We do not resist it because we love that person so much. Because we desire restoration. And if you're wondering, this kind of restoration, this kind of confrontation is virtually impossible on Facebook, on Twitter, and oftentimes over email too. Well, I'm just going to confront this. I'm going to speak my opinion on this, hoping that people will be restored in it. How many times has that worked? It has failed and it will continue to fail because it is not, this, it is not speaking truth with gentleness. It is not bearing the burdens of others. It is not skillfully seeking to understand. And there is a, a warning here in verse 1. It says, If any is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore in a spirit of, of gentleness. But, but watch out. Here's the warning. Keep watch on your heart, lest you yourself be tempted. So to be relationally generous is to take a huge risk. To confront others in order to restore them is very risky because it, is, it can be very damaging to your own heart. There's some good instruction by itself, but the weight of this verse is really uh, in what, what, after it says, if anyone's caught in transgression, restore them. The weight is really found in, in where he says, keep watching yourself lest you be tempted. What's happening here? When, when, here's what's happening. When someone wrongs you, when, someone, uh, when you catch someone in sin, when you have been offended, or merely when you just observe a sin from a distance, Scripture says, watch yourself. Be careful about the next thing that you do. Because why? When someone makes a mistake, who is the first person you think of? What are you thinking about when someone is caught in sin? You're thinking of that person, right? You're thinking, oh, I can't believe that they would do that. What kind of a person? Who do they think they are? We think about how evil they are, how careless they are, how irresponsible. We think about how I would never do that. No one thinks of themselves first unless they're thinking of themselves in a, in, in a superior uh, superior conceit of like, well, God, thank you that I don't, I don't struggle with that. wonder what that would be like to be such a bad person like they are. When someone's caught in sin, we're thinking about how bad that person is and how careless they are. And sin is that subtlety, that subtle thing that happens in our heart when we see another person fall into sin. Sin subtly works in our heart to make us proud and preoccupied with our own piety. 
Sin works in us and makes us feel good that we don't sin like that. And Paul says, be careful. You're being tempted to destroy any chance of being relationally generous with that person. And so when we need to confront someone, it's best to season our hearts with prayer so that when we confront a friend, it will not be done in haste, it will not be done uh, with unprocessed passion or with the wrong motive, but it will be done with gentleness, with an aim to restore them in Christ. Keep watching yourself. How many of you, when, when going to confront someone in their sin or to rebuke or correct, do that? Watch themselves and watch their heart and say, God, don't tempt me in my desire to love them. Do not cause me to sin. You don't do it. I don't do it. It's so infrequent. We got to do better. Here's a second practice. The first is this commitment to be, to be confrontational uh, with, with humility, with gentleness, and with confidence. The second is to seek to understand and serve others more than to be understood and served ourselves. The author of Galatians, um, the Apostle Paul, is very, very vividly teaches here uh, how a Christian ought to relate to other Christians, other people. It's a shift from this consumer mentality of using people for their own benefit to another uh, kind of way that says that we are uh, from a consumerism kind of viewpoint to one of a family, mutual love for one another, of serving and pouring out for others, seeking the flourishing and benefit of other people. And he says, bear one another's burdens, and by doing this you fulfill the law of Christ. Bearing the burdens of others is precisely the, the good news, precisely the gospel of Jesus. Oh, what do you know, Jesus, about bearing the burdens of others? It is precisely what I have done for you. It is precisely why I have come. To bear the burden that you cannot bear yourself. To not just help you, but to carry that. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I will take that burden. I will take that, I will take that struggle. Jesus is the, is the supreme burden bearer. And each of us, you and I, have, have transgressed, as this passage says. And trans, this isn't, says if your friend is caught in any transgression, it's not just, it's not talking about a specific sin. It's not talking about just the, the most grievous kinds of sin. The word transgression is just anything that misses the mark, anything that just rubs you the wrong way, anything that you notice that bothers you and another person can be a transgression. We have transgressed against God and His commands. We have sinned, and this sin becomes a burden to us. It becomes a curse, as the Bible says. It is a burden so heavy that we cannot carry it ourselves. It is a boulder that weighs on us, that crushes us. It is impossible to carry if left to ourselves. It would be eternally fatal. But God, who is rich in mercy, the Bible says, it cast upon Him, it cast upon Christ the, the sins of us all. And it crushed him to the point of death. He died on the cross. He bore our sins, bore our sins. He came to serve and not to be served. The law of Christ is summed up in this, love your neighbor as I have loved you. God, why should I bear the burdens of others? Because I have supremely bore your burdens. Why would the law of Christ be summed up as, as love your neighbor? The law of Christ, it's an interesting, this is also, we don't see this construction anywhere else in Scripture, the law of Christ. Why would the law of Christ be summed up as love your neighbor? Because it is the ultimate 
example of this kind of love who bore our sins on the cross as he died. We love and serve others not because of a rule to follow. Hey, help somebody out. Why? Well, it's just a Christian thing to do. See, we don't do that for the rule. We don't do it for the law uh, of just behavior and doing it like that. We, we love and serve others because we desire not to follow a rule, but we desire to follow a person. We follow Jesus. We love Jesus. Say, so, what do you love? He says, I love bearing the burdens of others. Well, then that's what I want to love too. Because you have borne mine. Share, he says, share with others. I'll actually say this much more uh, next week, but it's good to say this here as well. Do you know that everything that you have is not given to you primarily for your benefit, but for you to share it with others? Everything that you have, everything, even your relationship, even your uh, friendship, your money, everything that you have is a gift from God and is meant not for your benefit primarily, but for you to share it with others. And there is a sober warning here as he talks about this in this passage. He says, we reap what we sow. He says, God, God is not mocked. God is not fooled. God is not tricked. The word mock here is, is a really common word. We use that word. You know what it, you know what it means, uh, basically. Uh, it's, it's common. It's one we use free, freely without really truly understanding what it actually means uh, at its deep uh, in core. To mock, the Greek word here, to mock, uh, literally means to, uh, to turn your nose. Uh, it's, it's the phrase that we use to, to turn up your nose to somebody. Um, it is to give someone the finger, not the pinky. It is to mock, to mock somebody is to, uh, to position yourself in, in, in such uh, derision and, and conceit and superiority over that person. And this is what God says of us. When we misuse his blessings, we are doing just that to God. We're turning our nose to him. We're mocking him. It is an act of defiance against God when we are ungenerous. It is not just an issue of laziness. It's not just an issue of stinginess. It is an issue of integrity. When we do not share, we are, when we're stingy with our wealth, with our gifts, with our very lives, it is an act of defiance against God. And relational generosity is manifested in small acts of seeing all that we have as a gift from God and seeking opportunities to serve and to bless. He says, don't get tired of, of doing good and keep looking and, and, and seeking opportunities of, of small ways in your life to live this way as one who lives, uh, who has all that they have and using it as a gift and to share with others. It is seeking opportunities to say, God, uh, give me a raise so that I can be more generous. Bless me so that I can be a blessing to others. What I have now, even in my, uh, in my need and in my poverty and in my, my lack, let me even use those things in ways to see opportunities how to, how to be a blessing to others. And the last way to be practical in this, another way to practice relational generosity is to do this as we move down the passage, is to know what burdens you must carry yourself. So sometimes, uh, for instance, sometimes you can be very generous in not what you give to others, but in what you hold from others. Uh, here, here's a, a basic example. For instance, if I am sick, uh, it would be an act of relational generosity 
uh, to not cough in my hand and then, shake your, and then shake yours. I am being relationally generous by saying, no, I'm not going to give that to you. I'm not going to share that. Okay? So let's look at this. If, at face value, it looks kind of like a contradiction. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Two verses later, bear your own load. Okay? What's going on there? Bear other people's burdens. Take care of yourself. What is happening here? Well, it's not a contradiction because the two words that are used are very different. One is burden and one is, is load. The burden is that, is that very heavy, heavy need that cannot be lifted without the help of, of generous friends. The load, as it's talking about our personal load, is like a, it's like a backpack. Or in the Midwest, a book bag. Or a briefcase, okay? It is, it is, this is an, a good way of saying when he says, carry your own load, bear your own load. Bear the burdens of others, but bear your own load. It is saying, don't abuse the relational generosity of others. When Paul says, let each one test his own work, he, this, this is, is a stern warning for those who wish to not be responsible with the burden of sin in their own life. Because this command to bear one another's burdens can present a temptation for all of us to say, hey, we're a family here. And a family is called to love one another. And I'm struggling with a sin, and so you must bear that. Paul says, not so fast. We find ourselves in a heated conversation, for say, and we, we lose our head. And we might say, hey, they, they pushed me. They, they instigated me. They're, they're the difficult one to talk to. God gives to us each differently. He gives to us each different particular responsibilities and calls us to respond to every situation obediently. He calls each of us to respond obediently, individually, with what is going on in our life and in our heart. And so the Bible says, help one another. Bear one another's burdens. Support one another. Confront each other. Love each other. But do not use that as an excuse to not take care, to not obey God in your life. This is your load to carry and no one else's. It forces us to ask some questions. And some questions like this, am I doing all that God has asked me to do in my life? You are responsible yourself to be generous with what God has given to you. And no one else will have to pay that penalty. No one else is responsible for you. Are you carrying your own burdens in a way that pleases God? Are you wrestling with the sin in your heart before God? Are you dealing personally with your personal sins before the Lord in a way that pleases Him? Well, we're all a work in progress. But God has commanded you to trust Him, to follow Him, to repent of sin. How are you doing that? Well, we all need to share each other's burdens. No, you will be responsible for your life. Am I relying too heavily on others as an excuse for my own procrastination for obedience to God? Well, we struggle with the same sin, and they're, you know, they're, they're working on it, and so I'm going to work on it too, and, and we're all at different places in our life. But carry your own load. And so here we see that relational generosity consists not just of us sharing with others, but also being relationally healthy in ourselves and, 
and knowing what, what, what burdens are ours to carry. So there's these boulders and backpacks, so to speak. The boulders of like, we, I actually need help. I need a, a friend to come alongside. I need a friend to, to shoulder this burden with me. And then there's other things that we need to know that, that this is a burden that God's placed in our life that we need to be faithful with. Can you discern between the two? Sometimes it takes friends, actually, to help discern between the two and say, you know what, I'm gonna, I need to help you with this. I need to come alongside and support you in this. You can't do this alone. And then sometimes it takes a good friend to say, I love you, but you need to be faithful in this. God's asking you to, to be faithful. And so I'll encourage you to do so. This seems like a tough path. It seems like, well, this is hard. How can we be relationally generous? It sounds really hard. I'd rather just give money. <laughs> so you thought being financially generous was the hardest thing you need to do, but you realize this is the hardest thing to do. You know, in our three-week series, this is the sermon I didn't want to preach. Next week, I'm really excited. I love talking about money. I mean, I feel like it's my, spirit, it's my job description to make you feel uncomfortable. That's what you guys pay me for. And so I'm really excited for next week, but this week it was really terrifying to me. Because I think this is hard to do. It's hard to be relationally generous. It's hard to put aside our self-absorption. It's hard to put aside our, our individual needs. It's hard to share our life with messy people. And the path to relational generosity seems very uh, hindered. Seems very, like there's a lot of obstacles in the way. But there is a path, and it's one that's beautiful. It's one that's marked by the grace of God. It's one that is worth pursuing, and one that is empowered with God himself. It is not a fruitless pursuit. The path to relational generosity is found in, in a common analogy that all who are reading this passage are going to understand. In farming... It's, it's an analogy that, that, that everyone's going to understand. The situation of a farmer sowing seeds that bore, that, that led to a, a desired harvest. One of my most recent projects is, uh, is that I've, I've made a small garden in our yard. Don't mock me. <clears throat> I've spent several hours preparing this uh, small uh, garden bed. I've prepared the soil. I've bought some good, expensive, like organic soil. I've designed and constructed a good irrigation system that, that, it, that drips into uh, this area. I've put it in a perfect place where there's the right amount of sunshine throughout the day and the right amount of shade uh, when appropriate. I'm really excited about this. I even bought some really nice like, organic uh, vegetables from, you know, from seed, and, and, and I'm so excited to see this harvest. And after completing it, you know, it was about you know, three, four weeks ago or so. Um, and as my son kind of watched and helped with that and helped toil the land, we're just looking at it and, and nothing has come up. Nothing has grown. And you know why? You know why nothing has grown? Because the seeds are still in their little envelope. <laughs> and I didn't even plant them. <laughs> I don't know what I was expecting to see. And I'm really bummed out. They're just there, safe in our kitchen cupboard. And the garden looks beautiful. It's ripe. It's ready. It's nutrient-packed. I didn't sow anything. It doesn't matter how much I love that garden. It doesn't matter how eager I am to bite into that first bite of sweet uh, tomato. It, it doesn't matter how much I like kale, which indeed I do. This is really weird. The, bitter, the more bitter, the better. So how do we become relationally generous? We sow. We, we sow, but we don't sow into our behavior. 
This is the nuance that I want you to see here. What is the path to relational generosity? Some might say, just work harder, be a better friend, keep trying at it. And in that way, we're sowing to relationship. We're sowing to behavior. We're sowing to ourselves to be a better person. But this says, do you want to be relationally generous? Do you want to be loving? Do you want to be patient? Do you want to be kind? Do you want to have self-control? Don't sow to those things specifically, but sow to the Spirit who provides those things in your life. It's counterintuitive. Because the work of true generosity is not found in behavior. The work of true generosity is, is in a heart change. The, the, the work of true generosity is not in the soil, but in the seed. And it's something that only God can do. Only God can plant those seeds. Only God can provide that growth. So how do we become relationally generous? Well, look at the fruit of the Spirit that we started out with in verse 22. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is no law. Do you realize that every one of those fruits is relational in, in content? Even self-control is relational because it is there's no need for self-control if you're alone. The self-control is how we relate, how we hold our tongue, how we, how we remain uh, patient, composed, and, and do not follow just our emotions. They're relational fruits. How do we sow to the Spirit? How do we allow the fruit to be produced in our lives? And here's the first thing that we do. First, we remember that we belong to Jesus. How do we sow to the Spirit? We remember that our approval and welcome from God the Father rests not in our character or in our behavior, but in the grace of God and His record and His dying on the cross for our sins. We sow to the Spirit by, by remembering and trusting that Christ died, that He bore our sins, that He became, He took our burden. He became our burden. He is our supreme burden bearer. And so the first thing we do is we desire to sow to the Spirit as we realize that Christ has, so that God sowed into Jesus our sins so that he could sow into us the Spirit. God sowed into Jesus our sin that led to physical death so that God, by faith, could sow into us the Spirit that would what? Lead to eternal life. We are free to confess our failure to obey him. We are free to acknowledge that we have not been a good friend. We are free to acknowledge that we have failed uh, to obey Him. We're free to acknowledge that we have often, rather than sowing to the Spirit, we have sowed to the flesh. And, and, and what, what does it look like when we sow to the flesh? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, Rivalry, dissensions, divisions. I mean, these are all like relational, these are all relational things that break apart relationships. We're free to admit that, God, we have sown to our flesh. We have not been relationally generous, and the fruit of that is a harvest of pain in our relationships. And he doesn't say, hey, you're angry, stop being angry. He says, you've sown to your flesh, now sow to the Spirit. Trust in Jesus. Your approval comes from God. The second thing is, we sow to the Spirit through the work of obedience that flows from a grateful joy in being children of God. 
When we do this, our sinful desires lose power. See, he doesn't just say, just trust Jesus and, and it'll happen. He says, he's so to the spirit, so to your heart and your mind, remembering that your rightness and justification with God rests in Jesus' death for you. You're welcomed by God the Father because of Jesus. Now go and sow. Go work that garden. Go pull the weeds. Go harvest the soil. Go, go tend to it well. Never grow weary in doing good. But I don't want to. It's hot outside. It's my, my, I keep getting holes in my jeans. I, I, it's, it's difficult work. He says, don't get tired doing that work. Because if you keep doing that work out of a joy of what God has done for you, it'll reap a harvest. See, you'll, you'll be like Jesus. You will, bear, you, will, you will bear fruits of the Spirit. We are never commanded to bear fruits of the Spirit. We are commanded to abide in Christ, to trust in Him, to sow into Him, and then God will bear the fruit. Do you realize that? Day by day, we prepare our hearts to trust in Him. We deny sin, and by the grace of God, we do good wherever we can. And I know that many of you and myself at times, frequently, I grow weary in doing good. Because I say, what's the point of doing that good? What is the point of just always doing good? We get weary. And just like, okay, let's, let's, let's imagine someday we actually do plant the seeds. Right? I have to. Just my own integrity, I think. I just... <laughs> and I plant it, and I water it, and then I step back and say, okay, fruit. You see, but we need to understand the process. We need to understand that everything healthy takes time, that everything good is nurtured, and that God provides that growth. And so he encourages us to keep at it. You will never be sorry. You will never regret loving someone who has hurt you. You will never regret pursuing someone who is not like you. You will never regret doing good uh, even when it's very costly to you. Eternal life means, means so much more than just forgiveness of sins. You see, we have such a narrow view of the gospel. We think, great, I believe in Jesus and he forgave me, and now I get to go to heaven. That is true, but that is such a narrow view of, of what it means to have eternal life. It means that our sin was sowed into Christ so that his life would be sowed into us, and his life in the Spirit being sowed into us will produce a whole new life, new desires, New ambitions, new motivations, new pursuits, new, new uh, courage, new energy for relationships, new, new passions, new fruit of life that loves God and loves others. If you're hesitant this week to pursue people that are very different than you, let me encourage you to do just that. Would you do that in maybe the next week, the next 7 to 14 days? Would you have a meal with somebody that is very different from you? Would you have a meal with someone who maybe who, who, who voted different than you? Would you have a meal with someone who looks different than you? Or talks or dresses? The kids don't count. I can, you know, they're so different from me. Would you do that? And would you go to listen empathetically? Would you go to be relationally generous? Would you spend yourself for the sake of that person, even if you get nothing in return? God says, you will, if you sow to the Spirit, in the life of Christ, if you model after the supreme burden bearer by bearing the burdens of others, listening empathetically, 
seeking to serve and not to be served, then the Spirit will, will well up into your life and into, into eternal life, and the fruit of the Spirit will be glorious. Would you do that? Let's pray.